university professors spend a lot of time talking about a lot of things with each other at academic conferences and in academic journals. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals, and I want to talk to you. Some of the most interesting thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard by people outside of the walls of academia, so I'm on a mission to bring those thoughts to you. Fabulous people, interesting ideas, brilliant conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. This is Dr. Christopher Bell. You are on the Deconstruction Workers. Today on the Deconstruction Workers, my guest is Dr. Rick Stevens. Dr. Stevens is out of the University of Colorado at Boulder. He is a really good friend of mine, a writing partner, and I think you're really going to enjoy where we're going today. So, Dr. Stevens, welcome and good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, morning, you know, where we are currently right, right now. <laughs> So today, what we are talking about on The Deconstruction Workers is this idea of fandom, what it means to be a fan of something, which is really, oh, yeah. it's an interesting topic, I think, because it's something people don't spend a lot of time outside of our academic circles thinking about or talking about, but it's a thing people feel like they inherently understand. I mean, people think yeah. they know what it means to be a fan of something, but it works in some interesting ways that I think not a lot of people spend any time thinking about. I think that's right, that we think of our fandom as something that's internal to us. And I think increasingly as a culture, we're participating in systems, but not thinking about systems. And so that leads us to think about things like fandom or groups or networks in this very kind of myopic way. We don't kind of see the context in which we're participating. So I think that's absolutely right. And I think this is going to be an interesting exploration. I know that probably some of the stuff you want to get to and that we want to talk about has to do with how fans relate to each other. But before we get to that, I think it's always good to remember kind of the setting in which all of this happens. If we're in a capitalistic society in which our culture is bought and sold to us so that there's this kind of structure over us that when we're talking about fans, Fans are fans of commodities, and these commodities are being produced by these large corporations that that part when, you know, we start talking about fans fighting with each other or talking to each other or doing fan types of activities, it often makes that superstructure invisible. And so before we make it invisible, I wanted to make it visible. <laughs> you bring up an interesting point. One of the things that I oftentimes tell my students is that we don't live in a capitalist society. We actually live in a consumerist society. Well, right. Which is the same, but not the same. No, we're definitely advanced past just basic capitalism, right? So yeah, absolutely. For our listeners, a capitalist society is about having it's about accumulation. It's about, I have gathered wealth and now that wealth is mine. A consumerist society pushes that one step further in that it's not a society about having, it's a society about wanting, which is different. We are socially conditioned in this culture not to be satisfied with having ever. So whatever we have is great, but that never, 
ever stops us from wanting the next thing. That's how we're conditioned. And the illusion embedded in that is that we do value the having. I mean, you and I talk a lot about toy collectors or comic collectors. There's a capital impulse towards that, but no, that's absolutely true. You know, if I get my key issue of something, that merely says, okay, I've checked something off, but now there's 10 more to take its place. Right. There's, there's never an arrival point, for sure. I never have enough. Right. We, as a society, are taught we never have enough. I've never gotten all the things. So to kind of skip ahead a little bit, and we may have to circle back to this after we put a few more things on the table, that's one of the reasons why I feel like there's so much anxiety in some of these fandoms, especially the ones that get very hyper-engaged, because there's an anxiety about, oh my gosh, I'm never going to have arrived at the status that I'm seeking, and so there's this kind of switch that turns into us that then becomes a little bit reductive. I'm going to determine what matters and I'm going to start breaking down other people so that if I can't arrive, at least I can win. And in that way I can assert my status. I get to say what counts and it happens to be something that I have a lot of one way or another. Which makes me the better quote unquote fan. Right. I'm the better fan than you. Cause I have these things that you don't have. And that's the basis on which I judge who's good at being a fan. And so what's interesting about that is, you know, it's not necessarily that society has changed its rules. I mean, we're still working on wanting status, wanting the means to do certain things or have certain things, but it's like the underlying common denominator keeps shifting away from us. It keeps moving. There's there's never a point at which we can have enough, do enough, or be enough when we're wrapped up really heavily in these fan communities. And I think it's important also here at the outset to say, it doesn't matter what kind of a popular culture thing you are a fan of. These practices still work. So whether it's You're a fan of a basketball team, you're a fan of a band, you're a fan of a movie property or a toy property or a comic book or or whatever, the same kinds of principles always apply. So if I'm a fan of a basketball team, I might have a hat or I might have a jersey or I might have a shirt or I might go to the game or I might pay for courtside seats or I might, there are always the next level of fandom that we can push. Right. And we're all kind of constituents of different fandoms that interweave and overlap. And how we, you know, no matter what we do, nobody gets to, in the the ultimate sense, win, because there's always another level, another step, another stage, or just another value system that's at work. Because I'm courtside, I have the jersey, I've, you know, got season tickets, and that guy got to have dinner with the star player and I don't have access to that, right? There's always another level or stage or step. So we're always kind of settling on what it is that where we draw value and where we set. But I just wanted to say, it's also, you know, very convergent. Last night we had a really, I was thinking about this because we had this really weird day. My son got out of school, last day of school, comes home watching a baseball game. So I'm wearing a baseball jersey then quickly lost track of the time, had to throw that off, pull on a Star Wars shirt, go to the opening of a movie so that we could watch it. And there's lots of fan things that happen around that. And then halfway through the movie, because I'm this kind of fan, had to pull on the Rockets basketball jersey so that when we got home for the fourth quarter, 
you know, I was already supporting. You pull on the jersey in the middle of a movie to go home to watch a game where no one will see you wearing the Rockets jersey but you, but because you're a fan of that team, somehow you are... I don't know, putting good vibes out into the universe for your team to win by wearing the jersey in your own home where no one can see you doing it. There's that definitely that part, and that's the pro-social way of thinking about it. The paranoid way of thinking about it is if I don't wear that jersey... My team's going to lose. Exactly. And so it's there's a ritual, There there's some religiosity that creeps into it. You know, I needed not just... It was a particular jersey. I needed to wear it, and there's a particular beer glass with beer. I mean, there's just there's there's a ritual that goes into that. It just happened yesterday that three fandoms overlapped in the same space, and I had to kind of negotiate that. Which I mean, I I can do. We all do that at least when it's healthy. <laughs> <laughs> that I knew when to take off the baseball jersey when to wear the Star Wars shirt and when to put on the basketball shirt. Because in that last night, even though it's the opening of a movie and all of that, one of my fandoms was the most important and I knew which one it was. Because all of our fandoms sort of live in this very arbitrary hierarchy. And it's an economy and it's one that is constantly shifting. And that's what I mean by a common denominator, both within a particular fandom but also just across our fandoms, you know, having to decide here is the ultimate expression of, you know, it's free comic book day. So if you're a comic book fan, you have to do that to support your local comic book shop. But what if that comes into competition with your sports team? And what if that comes into competition with a concert? What if that comes into competition with, I mean, any number of things? And we kind of have to prioritize, choose and manage this economy of interwoven social identities that we're trying to to mitigate through all this. Because it's not simply the sort of commodity or commercial economy of the fandom that's at play. It's also the identity economy. And by that, I mean the things you're a fan of say a lot about you to other people. So one of the things that I, in my work deal a lot with is thinking about social capital and how every fan system, there's a certain amount of economic capital. I can buy really expensive things. I can buy jerseys that no one else has or very few people have. I can buy a comic book that's really expensive. I can do that. There's also that intellectual capital. If somebody quizzes me on my knowledge, I can talk coherently about what happened in Rockets basketball from 30 years ago, or I can talk about you know, the origin of the Houston Astros, or, oh man, if I'm going to watch a Star Wars movie, I can talk about the development of mythos or story or even production all the way through it. But then there's that end point, which is, I think, the part that's the hardest, which is the social capital. Do people recognize that I'm good at these things? Can I get standing, status, respect? When I talk, is my opinion valued? Those kinds of things. And I think it's that last part that is the, it's the most interesting to me because it's people just invest a lot of energy and they do it in ways that are often counterproductive. I mean, we're just very incoherent about what we want and how we want it. And in these fandoms don't all work the same way. And so you kind of watch, you know, somebody can kind of dominate in one fandom, move to another and just not because the rules are different. The values are different. And it's not like there's a cookie cutter way to do all of this. And anyway, so that's kind of what's interesting to me is watching both the in-group 
discussions, like how people are trying to promote themselves or to denigrate somebody else, which is about promoting themselves. And then, of course, is the cross fandom where one group takes a shot at another group but or how you speak across or you know how you how you do that and and again most of us have these competing fandoms i am both a star trek fan and a star wars fan and even though those fandoms famously are at war with each other most of the people i know it's about a percentage of which you are it's not a zero sum game even though the rhetoric or the way we talk about it would lead us to believe there's this war going on. Well, and that's true among lots of different kinds of fandoms as well. Some fandoms are built on that. I'm a fan of the Broncos and you're a fan of the Raiders, so I hate you. So some fandoms are are sort of built on that, but other fandoms use that as a false dichotomy. So I am a fan of Marvel comics. I'm not a fan of DC comics. So that makes me a Marvel person except mm-hmm. that i kind of like supergirl like I'll, right. i watch teen titans go so i have these dc things that i <laughs> still enjoy even though i'm not a dc fan per se well but let's explore that because i mean how much dc stuff do you have to like or participate in or or, or how much intellectual capital do you have to amass before you're allowed to switch on that identity. I mean, I'm the same way. There are certain things in DC Comics that I really like, but, you know, in my head, I know percentage-wise, I can talk, <laughs> I can recite scripture on Marvel, you know, right. um, you know, all the way back through the text. And with DC, there are things I like, and so I can talk coherently about it. And But then also... The reception of that, you know, when somebody walks up and says, you're a comic book guy, tell me about 1990s Batman. And I'm like, oh, I do not want to. I don't like it. And (laughs) I will tell you, I I think it's garbage. How about that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't I didn't like what happened in it. But then usually the, the even more interesting is when they'll say Animal Man and I'll say, oh, Animal Man is awesome and it's subversive and it does that. And they're like, "Okay, tell me about that. And I'm like. I've read maybe 10% of it. I know it's great because I've talked about it, but I haven't read it all. And that makes me, so I'm not a fan of that, even though I can say I appreciate it. I think it's important. I can see how it has changed the way comic book writing happened, but I'm not a fan of it in the sense that I don't have a love of that character or haven't even read enough of that text to be considered an expert or have enough intellectual capital. And and so I'm just saying there's like this bizarre economy where these labels are kind of arbitrarily attached. And that's why we see so much fan rage at, at, at people. You know, how can you be a fan and not know this one fact that I know? And I don't even consider myself that big a fan or I do. You know, and so therefore we've got to wrestle this out. But we also see that within fandoms. Oh, completely. It's not just fandoms in relationship to each other. It's within fandoms as well. For example, uh, I spend a lot of time, probably more time than any one human being should, discussing professional wrestling with professional wrestling (laughs) fans because I do a lot of work around professional wrestling. And there's a guy, his name is Jim Cornette. Jim Cornette was a wrestling manager, an on-screen character wrestling manager throughout the 1970s and 1980s. And now he has a podcast. 
And every time I listen to his podcast, he is in some way lamenting how professional wrestling doesn't do what it used to do. And so he's a fan of the wrestling from the 70s and 80s, but he's not really a fan of anything happening right now. And the fun part of listening to that podcast is listening to current fans come onto the podcast with a guy who has forgotten more about professional wrestling than almost anybody on earth will ever know and try to convince him that what he's watching today is good. And it's this ramming into each other of different kinds of fandoms. And let me push that to the next level and probably at some points telling him he's not a fan. Yes. Or that he's, you know, an old man screaming at the clouds. Right. Get off my lawn. Get off my fandom lawn. Right. And but again, that status invades. And part of that, I mean, I'm just going to put myself in the, you know, you know, I'm not a huge wrestling fan. I I have tangential connections to it exactly but you know i if i'm a young person and i'm watching wrestling and it's my thing that i really like and i'm hearing this older person lament what i love you know lament for something i never knew about or thought was boring and now it's exciting to me there's also a generational value that's creeping into that but there's this perceived attack you know on my status right you've critiqued not just my taste not just that, but my standing, my, you know, my identity in many ways. It's that shift away from let's talk about taste cultures, which is the way we used to talk about it in media studies, to, oh, no, 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 that's not a taste culture. You have just told them their childhood is invalid. And here comes the rage, right, right coming at us. Well, and this is the problem with fandoms that span generations, Fandoms of things that have been around for a really long time. We witnessed this a lot when Star Wars, the prequels came out. Oh, man. You know, and you had these 1977 through 83 fans who were saying, oh, this Jar Jar Binks thing is garbage, whatever. And then you had people who were children who loved Jar Jar and who loved... All the all the kinds of things that we loved when we were kids about Ewoks and Jabba the Hutt mm-hmm. and whatever, these kids were loving about <laughs> Jar Jar and pod racing and whatever. And it was a bunch of fans our age going to these child fans saying, you don't even know what's good because this film is not good and we hate it and we hate Jar Jar and whatever. And when George Lucas came out and said... I didn't make this film for you. I made this film for these kids. Yeah. Fans our age were mad. They were really, really mad. Which is funny because there's so many interviews of George Lucas in the mid to late 80s in which, I mean, I I saw it the other night on on James Cameron's program where George Lucas said, well, I made Star Wars for 12-year-olds. And that was what it was for. The very first Star Wars was for 12-year-olds. And so the idea that he tried to do that again in 1999, he's just being consistent in that way. He's just offering the product to a new generation. Of 12-year-olds. A new generation of 12-year-olds. Right. Not a new generation of you, adult parent of a 12-year-old. And so that's something, especially in comics, but Star Wars in particular, there's a few other big fandoms like that. When I grow up and my tastes diversify, become more complex, and become, frankly, more adult, that doesn't mean that the product offering, its goals have shifted. You know, I mean, if you think about what Star Wars or even just Disney in general, they know what they're after from a product logic sense. 
They want to instill in younger people an attachment, a love of something, because then they know, man, we've got a consistent revenue stream that's going to go through the life of that group. And so the idea in some of the contemporary, and we can talk all about what's going on in Star Wars right now, which I find fascinating, this idea that older fans need to be the ones that are made happy runs counter to the logic of the product offering its its own logic in the first place. It can, but it doesn't have to. So for example, if you look at, and I, I talked about this on another episode, but if you look at the way that Hasbro, for example, developed a three-tiered sales system so that Sure. It had rescue bots for little kids, and then it had Transformers, the animated show on Discovery Family for the traditional kids they were mm-hmm. always trying to get. And then they had Combiner Wars and Titans Return for, for collectors my age, and those are toys that are right. explicitly not meant for children. And so there are ways to sort of cultivate this lifelong fandom and then reward that lifelong fandom again with product. Well, and and that is what we're seeing Lucasfilm doing right now. Right. You know, um, we saw an anthology movie last night. Now, my son liked it, but that really wasn't for that movie. Solo is not really for my son. It's for me. It's for that person who likes the new saga, but grew up on the older and so now we're going to re-explore that. We're going to bring that in. We're going to reward with tons of misdirects and Easter eggs. And there's a puzzle piece to it where I'm actually being invited to explore and unlock memories and things that are from my childhood. My understanding is going to evolve of something that I like. Now, my son has seen every Star Wars movie, but he's eight. And he's watching Solo and says, that was great. I liked it. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I know half of the stuff that I exclaimed about in the theater are not even on his radar. It went right over his head. And that's that's OK. I mean, it, it's a the thing about Lucasfilm and the modern franchise, which you alluded to with Hasbro and what they're trying to do. It's just that Disney and Lucasfilm are so much better at that. So much better. <laughs> <laughs> it's that there's this huge library of product offerings and it's for so many different groups. Um, we might as well dive in a little bit, you know, there was a lot of, there was rancor over the last trilogy installment in the, in the new Star Wars films. But one of the things I found really interesting about the conflict, which I'm going to say in a minute was actually overreported. Like when you start digging into the numbers of, of who these groups are, and I do want to say something about that in a minute. But one of the things I realized, you know, there were elements in that film. I didn't like that this purple-haired woman did this particular, you know, said these things to Poe, and I didn't like the way that played out, that is really interesting to me because when I'm watching what is supposed to be a cultural event in this trilogy saga film, here's this character, Vice Admiral Holdo, who had been previously only appeared in young adult novels geared towards young girls. Right. So I'm watching this movie They brought that character out of the novel series, put her in front, and that's honoring those kids that have read those books. They're seeing their literacy rewarded, and that's the challenge of what I I see Lucasfilm doing is, wow, if I really start decoding what I'm watching, I can see 10 or 12 different Star Wars fandoms that are getting a nod, that are getting fan service, that are getting 
um, you know, some recognition for their contribution. But then controversy starts to come out when a group says, well, I don't like that stuff and I don't understand it. It's not part of my fandom. It's not for me, so it shouldn't exist at all. Exactly. And to be charitable, I think that's a, a misrecognition of the purpose of culture, which is supposed to bring us together. When I'm not so charitable, it's, you know, there's other rude things I can say about trolls and people. But but in some ways, it also completely makes sense. So I'm going to detour us slightly so that I can do some definitional stuff for our listeners, because you have to understand why we become fans of things in the first place for this concept of it's not for me, so it shouldn't exist to make sense. Mm-hmm. So let's say it is 10,000 years ago when we're first starting to, as a species, come together into something you might call communities. 10,000 years ago, I'm a fairly big human being as, a, as just a person in life. I'm, I'm about six foot two. I go about 260. I'm a big guy. And for most people, most of the time as I walk around life, if you had some stuff and I wanted your stuff, your stuff is my stuff. And keep in mind, if you're a woman, that also includes your body historically. Yeah. Especially because in the community that I live on, on this college campus, women outnumber men about 60, 40. Mm -hmm. So if you have stuff and I want your stuff, your stuff is my stuff. Today, I don't do that because we have, you know, the social compact. We have laws. We have, there will be punishments for me, whatever. 10,000 years ago, why don't I do that? Why don't I come to your hut and kick open the flap and take your kids and your food and murder you and your wife is now my, my wife? Why don't I do that? Well, the reason I don't do that is because there are more of you than there are of me. And you might come at me with a bunch of sharpened sticks And you could kill me, but that's not the worst thing that could happen to me. The worst thing that could happen to me is you could push me to the outside of the tribe. You could banish me. And then I'm on my own. And when I'm on my own, real things can happen to me. The saber-toothed tiger can get me. The tribe that lives on the other side of the hill could get me. The gods that live in the woods could get me. Oh, just where are you going to get bread? I mean, right. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are things that could happen to me. I need, I need the social group. Mm-hmm. I would argue today, we don't need the social group as much because of technology, because I can order what I need on eBay and the grocery store can deliver groceries to my house and I never have to leave. But 10,000 years ago, I need the collective. And as we advance in civilization, the gods in the woods or the tribe that lives on the other side of the hill or the saber-toothed tiger aren't going to get me, but I still have this need to be a part of the tribe. I still have this need to be a part of that collective. And not only that, but I have a need to believe that my collective is what in my own research and in my own classes I call the pure and original people. I have a need to believe that we're the good guys. And so if you look like me, dress like me, talk like me, act like me, you are me. You're one of our tribe. And our tribe is good and smart and kind and beautiful and all of the good things in life. Which means if you don't look like me, don't dress like me, don't talk like me, don't act like me, you can't be a part of the tribe. Because if you were, then you would be like me. 
And because we're good and smart and beautiful and all the good things, you also can't be those either. Because if you were those, you would be one of us and you're not. So we are the pure and original people. We are good and smart and kind and awesome. And you are the other with a capital O. You are the other. You are the bad guys. You are the, you are something different. We are Americans and that's us and we're good. You are the terrorists. You're something else. We are Broncos fans. So we are awesome and good and smart and cool. You are Raiders fans. So you like people who are depraved and awful and murder their children and whatever. Not to mention the fact that for years and years, the Broncos were like the dirtiest team in the NFL, but we could talk about that extensively later. But when you're the good original people, it doesn't matter if you actually do the bad things because the the piece in this is story. It's how story reifies and exemplifies the better qualities that we want to be part of what would later become our brand. Uh, But back then was just our social identity and our story. That's also why, I mean, just to kind of pull this all the way back around and then we can move back into into fandom, you know, that's kind of the history of nation state warfare. It's whose cultural story is going to dominate, whose flag, whose ideals, who has the better expression. And all of that is tied to if the German people are facing off against Americans, whose cultural ideals are represented better, whose story is going to dominate. And then the actual quantification of what is done or that doesn't matter because winning and story kind of gloss over and get to tell the story of the character of a group as opposed to the actual analysis or that's just something that that I think is really important that all of this gets wrapped around this kind of mythology. The difference between fandom and nations is it's my personal mythology. You know, as a modern American in the 21st century, I have a lot more investment in personal story than social story, but there's this still this need to extend my personal story into that social space, claim it so that I can keep my personal value going. But that's also why combat is still at the heart of this. We can't get away from it. There's this need to exert power and influence over that. Well, not only that, but there's also this need to ensure that the pure and original people stay pure. Right. Oh, which is why I talked about this in a different episode, but this is why we police the borders of our fandom. It's why we go through our fandoms and we make sure the people who say they're a fan of the thing have the right credentials because you could be a spy from the tribe that lives on the other side of the hill. So we have to be sure you're supposed to be here, which is why we see, I think, a lot of these intra fandom conflicts. Yeah. You say you're a fan of professional wrestling. I say I'm a fan of professional wrestling, but you've never seen Mid-South wrestling from the 1970s. You have no idea who Bruiser Brody is. You have no idea. You're not an actual real, quote unquote, real fan because you don't know the history of where our fandom came from. You're, you're a guy who grew up on John Cena. That's like 14 seconds from today. You have no idea of what happened 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And, and so the, a piece that, that creeps into that, because I want to talk about generations of fans in a minute, and there's a challenge, you know, to what does it take to join a fandom and pay your dues and, and learn all of that. But think about this. I mean, what you're also just describing would very much fit the... Protestant Reformation, the idea that religious groups are going to fight over who has the right beliefs. And you're our ally, except the reason why I'm saying that is if you go into the history of that, I've always found it interesting following different religious groups. 
that the people that my tribe disliked the most was the one that was 99% like us. Exactly. Not the one that's completely different. Yeah, the one that's completely different. It's like, well, of course, they're Satan-driven or whatever, but we don't even think about them because it's so obvious that they don't belong, that we are not in competition with them. We're in competition with the one that is 95, 96, 98% like us. So we're going to focus on that 2% and just bash each other over it. And that's where all of our energy is going to go. And that's kind of how modern fandom works, especially with these long-standing films. I've I've been watching online and participating in a lot of groups just because I'm interested. I also obviously have some, some research interests in this about, you know, how people mitigate and drive their their view of their fandom forward. Right now, there's this mythology growing around Star Wars fans, the original fans. And it's it, you use that language, but literally, the original fans, those that were in the theater in 1977. and Which, by the way, would not include either one of us. Actually, it was me, funny enough. <laughs> well, but not in any sort of cognizant way. Uh, You're the exact same age as I am. There is no way you remember 1977. You would be surprised, man. Three and four year olds remember very particular things. (laughs) But here's the thing about that. So I'm an original fan and I remember those things. I know because of my study of psychology that, that I'm also reforming those memories. Right. So I remember certain things about Star Wars, and I think I'm pretty good about saying I remember here's these like five scenes that I remember as a young person. Everything else I remember has been filled in later through subsequent viewings and kind of attachments to the feelings I had or remembered. But I'm kind of reworking that text. We're constantly rewriting our histories. But see, what's interesting to me is so I can claim I was in the theater I can claim I saw it four times as a three and four year old. It came back out at Christmas. So I, you know, I, I know that hit my own personal history in that. But when I'm talking with someone who was 15 at the time or who was 25 or who was 30, there's a different, even among the originals, there's a wide spectrum of what happened at that time. There's a, there's a wide spectrum of what we remembered, what we, what it meant to us. So I can say with my three or four year old brain sitting in the theater, the reason I say three or four, I was three when it came out in May, my birthday's in June. So, you know, I saw it as a three and four year old, but I obviously wasn't like when people talk about what Star Wars meant in terms of shifting the way we think about production the way we think about science and all of that, those were not, that was not the work my three and four year old brain was doing. It's very different. And yet, when we talk online among fans, that still is a status symbol. Physically having been there. I could have been in that theater asleep over and over, but I still get a status because I was there. But the reason I'm saying that is because this original storyline even now like i'm watching it evolve and i'm thinking about man people are 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 putting certain things when i sat in the theater and i saw this and this happened and i'm like that's not the way we talked about that in the 90s and i mean some of these are the same people that's the thing about long-standing fandoms i know some of these people from the 90s or the 80s or but then there's this other interesting phenomenon that sort of goes kind of with that which is this attempt to then recreate that experience 
for a new generation and right. then being disappointed when it doesn't work out. For example, and you were there, so you know, and you had the exact same experience. For my birthday this year, mm-hmm. it happened to align with them doing a re-release for the 35th, I believe, anniversary of The Dark Crystal. Right. The Dark Crystal, one of my very favorite movies. I have very, very (laughs) visceral memories of being a kid in the theater, watching that movie when it came out and thinking it was the greatest thing I had ever seen. And over the course of my life, I have collected a lot of Dark Crystal stuff. I'm super excited about this Netflix series that keeps getting teased. And so because it coincided with this re-release for Two weeks in the movie theater, they were having these special events where they were playing the remastered version of the film. And so for my birthday, I convinced slash cajoled (laughs) slash frog marched all of my friends into this theater to watch The Dark Crystal. But your eight-year-old son and my 11-year-old at the time daughter were among those people we've marched into the theater. Right. And so they were having the child experience of having seen the film on the big screen for the first time. Right. At the same time, I was having, and and probably you as well, were having this reenactment of seeing the film in the theater. So here's what's interesting. I'm going to say there are four different, just from the people you have mentioned there, four different experiences of culture going on at the same time. You're doing what you just described, right? Where you are reenacting parts from your childhood. I saw Dark Crystal in the theater once and never again, not on VHS, never again. And part of the reason I didn't ever see it again was when in the 90s, like Star Wars and some of these bigger properties started getting a nostalgia base built around them. And so we were kind of doing that. One of my friends warned me early on, oh man, don't go see The Dark Crystal. It will ruin your childhood. It is not the way we remember it. And so I said, okay, fine, I won't. And I didn't. Now, having seen it with you on your birthday, I was like, oh, no, this movie actually held up pretty well. Um, Right. Maybe it's because it's remastered. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But here's the weird thing. So I'm watching it with my eight-year-old and there's moments where he's like, wait, who is that? What's going to happen? I'm like, I don't know. I, I, I remember this film, but I don't, I couldn't even tell you half the characters' names right now. I, I don't remember what's going to happen. I don't remember what parts might be scary or not, because I had that one seminal experience, and then it's loose in my memory, and I've done no reinforcement work over the, wow, decades since. And so you and I are having vastly different experiences, even though we both saw it in the theater, and now we're seeing it in the theater again. Meanwhile, your daughter is having an experience where she has seen the film on the small screen. On DVD, yes. Right. My son had never seen anything. He had no idea what he's walking into. And so it's just interesting to even think there, here's this moment of culture, which, you know, we've thought historically, powerful culture, it binds us together and forms these shared values. And I'm like, yeah, here's four completely different inner workings going on. And yet at the same time, we are sharing this experience. It's just that it's so radically different. And that just, I'm overplaying that just because we've known that for a while, but it is interesting just to point that out, that there's an illusion that goes on that says we were all there at the same time. We were all at a concert at the same time. And I'm like, yeah, but some of you 
were in the front row taking your clothes off. And some of you <laughs> were in the back trying to see over the heads of the tall people. You know, I mean, it, it wasn't the same experience and we were different ages. And there's another layer to this, which is I am a huge fan. So when I went to that theater, I went to that theater experience as probably the biggest fan in the room. Oh, totally. You went in as a person who had seen it once and was like, okay, that's a movie. Yeah. My daughter went in with the experience of having seen it and being sort of pre-afraid of parts because she had been afraid of those parts previously. When she was younger. When she was younger. And so sort of almost an anti-fan of the film. And then your son coming in, having no experience at all and being sort of tabula rasa, sort of blank slate there. Except he's heard that Olivia might be scared at some parts, so he's nervous about it, right? I mean... <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So to, to take it to the concert analogy, some people are there and they're wearing the t-shirt of the band because they love the band so much. Right. Some people are there because they got drugged there and they actually kind of don't like the band at all. Right. And some people have never heard a single song. Right. And so they're having three different interactive experiences all based on their level or lack of level of fandom. So... The thing that, that, and this is where I'd like us to think about some things for a minute, taking that forward is where that gets interesting. There are quite a few experiences like that where I was more the person in the back, didn't know why I was there, that later, my having been there is a status symbol. And it gets kind of claimed that way. Like, I, I, I think about that among the original Star Wars fans, and I'm just suspicious and wondering sometimes. So... May 1977, what other movies were people seeing? And here's that, yeah, my parents drug me to three movies. One of them became a phenomenon, and now it's a status symbol for me. Whatever my motive or experience was at the moment, that now is being remediated through all of these stories about that was an important moment and you were there. And I think about that kind of like in the Woodstock piece, you know, where if you, people have done that where, you know, if I add up the number of people who say they're at Woodstock, it's about five times the number of people that were actually there. Five times the number of people that venue could hold. Right. And in and while you could say, well, the venue was crowded, it wasn't five times overcrowded. And there's also social history where people will say, yeah, what's interesting is that there are these narratives that emerge, like, I remember when this happened, but just the sheer volume in logistics not everyone could have seen every one of these touchstone moments. It's not possible. It's not physically possible for people to have all been in front of the stage when a particular band that was not important but was going to be important was playing. But there's a particular amount of capital in saying that you were. Exactly. And that's kind of what I'm saying, that capital also hinges on this kind of illusion you create around what that experience meant. But And I'm not saying that people lie about that, although... Clearly, that's they do. possible, and they do. <laughs> so I'm going to put just a couple of things on the on the table and then kind of talk about some of these fandoms. So I'm a big Henry Jenkins reader and, and, and like kind of the way he talks about culture in this kind of reception stage. One of the things that's interesting is when he talks about the concept of poaching, the idea that... Textual poachers. Yes, textual poachers. The 1972 book was kind of talking about how fans can exert power over these texts that up until you know that point kind of the the dominant idea about media was that no 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 corporations control the product audiences their choice is to tune in or not 
and they will just absorb whatever is thrown at them or they will choose to turn it off. And their, their one choice is the on-off switch or volume. That's their control. And of course, when you think about how television works right, that's the metaphor through which we were thinking about that. But what Henry Jenkins was talking about was looking at Star Trek fandom through the 60s and 70s and how, man, the fandom is what kept that text going even after the show got canceled and the studio couldn't bring it back. And all these things were happening that there are thousands of people and now they're forming their own conventions that are built around the trade and sale of these thousands of fanzines, like magazines produced by fans about this text that no longer exists. And that thousands of people come. And so now all of a sudden they charge a little bit of admission and get capital and money. And now they can invite the original stars to come. And then that makes it get even bigger. His whole point is to say that, wow, you know, fans are actually pretty powerful in creating the culture, maybe not always driving the text, but as we know, yes, they can do that too now, uh, but back then, creating the culture around the text. And the but thing I, say, I say this all the time, it's once it leaves the hands of the creator, it doesn't belong to the creator anymore. Right. It belongs to the fandom and they don't have to ask your permission to do stuff. Right. They don't care what you say about it. They will keep a thing alive even when you want it dead, just look at the brown coats oh, man. and, and yeah. Firefly, this the Joss Whedon Firefly text where it, it has been, what, like 12 years since that show <laughs> went off the air? And fans are still creating stuff, still gathering, still, and there's only 13 episodes, I think, 13 or 15. 14 episodes, 15, <laughs> of that show at all. Yeah, 15 episodes, one movie, and yet so much culture built around it. I mean, and now to be fair, and comic series, and books, and conventions, and articles, and see, it's like it explodes out into the network well beyond the existence of what we think of as the primary text. And so I, I wanna just eliminate all the ways that that can work. Like when we're thinking about poaching, poaching can also be I take a long-standing text like Star Wars, or I'm sorry, let's let's stay with Star Trek for a minute because that's what Jenkins was writing about. I have this view of who this character is, and I've identified with this character. But there's this one episode that that character's out of character. It doesn't it doesn't fit my mold. And so as fans, what we do, and this is kind of passive poaching, we come up with lists and we say, here's the part that doesn't count. Yes. Because it, it breaks with the text. It's here was an episode in which Worf did something that does not match my view of Worf. So therefore that particular episode is bad writing doesn't count. So therefore- I love Firefly, but we're not counting Serenity because Serenity did stuff that made me mad. Right. Are you having the tension of not spoiling that movie, even though it's so old? I'm having so much tension right now of not spoiling that movie, but there's one particular reason why yeah. we don't count Serenity. Right. And I, I'm only making fun of you because I tease you about spoiling the last Harry Potter novel that I haven't read. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then I tease you about not having read the last Harry Potter novel that came out before your right. kid was even born. But he so, and I yeah. have not reached that one yet. And there's a whole backstory. <laughs> that's the thing. All these stories yes. about what this means, because this is not just about what has good production values and what tells the stories and the values that we want, although those things are important. It's also just about our personal histories with it and the way in which we identify with it. If I am watching Star Trek The Next Generation and I decide in season five that something that Worf does ruins that character for me, you can see the calculation. I've just invested five plus years in this thing. I have all of this. Am I going to let one episode say, I'm not a fan anymore, burning all the stuff, walking away? I mean, that doesn't happen as often because it's easy. But it can. But it can. And I will will give you the perfect example. So my wife and I and millions of people around the country invested about five years in the television show How I Met Your Mother. The series finale of How I Met Your Mother is quite possibly the worst series finale in the history of television. (laughs) Way way worse than Lost. Way worse than Lost. To the point where fans took to the How I Met Your Mother Facebook page specifically to tell the creators of that show they rejected the series finale and refused to watch the last season of the show because it literally ruins the entire rest of the run of that show. There are a lot of shows, you know, Seinfeld. People, Seinfeld's another yeah, good example. Where, and, and, and just to talk through that one right fast, there's always this, this expectation with the Seinfeld characters that they're doing these selfish, narcissistic things. But we have this kind of sense that because they haven't learned yet. Right. And they haven't evolved as people. And they aren't just these navel gazing jerks. But you get to the series finale, and I think one of the things that hits a lot of people is, oh my gosh, no, they never did learn. They're just, we've been watching a show about terrible people this whole time, and there's no growth, and there's no, and there was this kind of backlash towards it where there are people who say, well, then I'm, I'm just, I'm going to ignore that, or I'm going to scream about it, or whatever. Lost is the same kind of space where, where was this all going, And if it didn't go somewhere, wow, we wasted all that time on it. And there's the personal betrayal that comes in with that. Well, and the personal betrayal in the case of How I Met Your Mother is that we waited five seasons to meet the mother. We finally meet Tracy, who is played by Kristen Milioti. And the second we meet Kristen Milioti, we realize she is a better human being than anybody else we have met in the entire right. series. She's she's a better person. She, we yeah. like her instantly in a way that we viscerally do not right. like Robin because we've been set up to not right. like Robin. Robin does terrible stuff over and over again. And Ted Mosby, by the way, is not an okay person either. So we've been set up that, oh, we're supposed to like Ted because we've watched him for five seasons be not okay, not a good person because he's chasing after this other not good person. And then in the future, the reason we care about the show at all is because Tracy has redeemed his character. And then the series swerves us and says, nope, actually she dies and he ends up with Robin anyway. And we all go, 
then why the hell have I been watching this? What are you doing to us? Let's dig into that just a little bit to say what we like or don't like about shows is very complex, but there is at the heart of this, this sense of meaning that has to kind of fit. And for some of us, it's social, you know, I really like these characters, but they did something despicable. And I can't think that that despicable act is acceptable. So therefore, I'm no longer a fan of that. I can't support it. I can't, my politics run against it, or my, you know, sensibilities of what it means to be a good human being run against it, or, or even just my identity. If, if the character I identify with turns out to be something I don't like, that mirror does not do me any good. And I don't want to look at it. And uh, my identification is shattered. So there's, there's all these complex things running through our attraction to and our repulsion of different texts. So as per usual, fandom. So in conclusion, what? Well, in conclusion, fandom is both a logic driven by consumption, which is a strategy up at the highest levels of the culture producers. That, that part still exists. It's also about social identity, social community, the way we create culture and value systems and spread it through. But the psychology of that is what is so sideways at the moment. The old baggage we have from class warfare that is embedded now into our taste publics, where we are going to bash other people so that we can say, I may not have consumed enough, but I have consumed more than that person, which puts me on a hierarchy somewhere. Our status shouldn't come from these things, but it does. And because it does, this is why we have to watch, because this is not just affecting whether or not we like a Star Wars movie, whether or not we buy tickets at the box office. It's also affecting who we vote for, who we campaign for, who we decide that we're going to retweet, and what kind of value systems we want to put forward kind of to build this sense of social continuity and our, our perspective of culture that we would like to be known as, as we all try to say who the original people were and are. Yeah, I think we are in very, very similar headspaces. I would boil it down to we are what our stuff says we are. We are what the things we like say we are. The things we become a fan of reflect all kinds of things about who we are as a person, what we believe in, what our value systems are, where we derive enjoyment. And that is why we are so intensely connected to and defensive of the commercial commodity properties that we invest our time, energy, and money in. And just to add to that, and that would get us like almost on exactly the same page, there's an illusion of agency in that. Yes. That comes in there because... Because we have tons of consumer choice, but zero consumer control. Right. And so if I were... I'm not, so I can say this, but if I were to leave the Broncos behind a Pittsburgh Steelers fan and somebody says, I cannot believe that you support the Pittsburgh Steelers because Ben Roethlisberger... I have a trouble even saying his name, you know, has committed all of these sexual assaults. How can you support that institution? There's a lot of things going on in any fandom that can have nothing to do with that. But the symbols, there's a symbol of it. And so the illusion I was I was saying is that I feel like I have agency to control what the symbol means. And that is the ultimate illusion. <laughs> right. Because I don't. I cannot control 
what my fandom means to another person. And yet it feels like a can. And so that's why we're seeing so many people trying to do exactly that. All right. So for Dr. Rick Stevens, thank you for joining me again today. Uh, you will certainly be back for more on this subject. And thank you, listener, for downloading. We will talk to you soon. I am Dr. Christopher Bell, and this has been The Deconstruction Workers. Thanks for having me. This has been great. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Feel free to check out thedeconstructionworkers.com, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers, or Twitter at podcastdcw. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can donate as little as a dollar a month towards keeping the lights on at www.patreon.com slash podcastdcw. The Deconstruction Workers is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for The Deconstruction Workers was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, please support alternative scholarship and public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers is copyright 2018, all rights reserved.